0: The word logo is a truncated version of the word logotype, which is derived from the Greek words logos and typos which mean word and imprint, respectively. And a logotype was a word of the trade for typesetters back in the day of the early printing presses. And a logotype was a word that was contained all in one block for printing, whereas most words were made up of an assemblage of individual letters. Each had their own block, and they were arranged into words A logotype was a block that consisted of a commonly used word like the, for instance, or but. These were words that were common enough that they were cast together because they would almost certainly be used in every single printing job. Now, the modern usage of the word logotype typically refers to a logo that is made up primarily of letters. And so this would be a logo that is maybe the name of the brand that it is representing, whereas a logo, the the larger umbrella term that contains logotype, might also refer to a, a logo that is primarily graphical or iconic, that doesn't even necessarily have any words included in it. But in both cases, logos, and more specifically, logotypes, are used to refer to a brand. They're used to reference a collection of perhaps products, or people, or ideas. And this is something that existed, this concept of representing a collection of people, for instance. It existed before the printing press and it existed before the Industrial Revolution, which is when brands became a thing, when marketing became a thing. We had coats of arms, for instance, that were used to display something about a particular family, a particular lineage. And we had seals that were imprinted into coins, which were used to demonstrate that coin's value and its origin. But using such a mark, using a logo in the commercial world was something that did emerge primarily during the industrial revolution in a big way at least and it emerged in this way to try to set certain products apart from all of their competitors to try to keep your oats from becoming a commodity so that you're not competing with every other type of oats all the oats being produced by everybody else who is an oat manufacturer so that you're not competing with them in terms of price. You can instead set yourself apart and imply that your oats are different. You put your name on it and therefore you are speaking and attesting to the quality of your product above and beyond those that are unlabeled. So then rather than competing just on that one metric, competing by the price alone, you begin to compete through the values that your particular brand, your particular name, your logo, your symbol represents. And in many cases today, logos and brands still represent the same. They still aim to be a signifier of some type of quality. And that might be high quality in terms of better construction, for instance. But it might also mean reasonably well-built but cheaper than the competition. Or maybe luxurious without being particularly well built or rugged. Or maybe the product is associated with some particular movement or group. Rather than saying anything about the product itself, you are saying that it is affiliated with these other larger ideas. And consequently, over the last several generations, logos have become a pretty big deal and, in some cases, have become immensely valuable. They are an attribute that you can build around your product, and a lot of very smart, very capable people have done that over the years. The very first logo to be trademarked, which indicates that the people who did the trademarking saw it as a valuable asset in their portfolio, was the logo for Bass Brewery. And their logo, it's, it's just a bright red logotype, it's their name, scrawled in kind of a cursive and a red triangle. That's it. It's a very, very simple logo, all things considered. But because it came to represent their brand and all of the goodwill in that brand and their history and the reputation of their product, they saw it to be valuable enough to trademark it so that other people didn't use that logo or anything noticeably similar to it because that might harm the reputation that they have built, the reputation for a certain type of value, a certain type of quality. Companies like Coca-Cola, Apple, Disney, McDonald's, Nike, Mercedes-Benz, they all have logos that are themselves, the the logo itself, the actual icon or the logotype. These are worth billions of dollars. This is a valuation, not Based on the company, not based on the equipment and talent and stock of product and intellectual property that they hold, but on the value of being able to slap that logo on things, on the implication of putting it on something, because the meaning that they've imbued in that logo itself is valuable enough to warrant that type of price tag. It has come to mean something when you see, for example, An Apple logo on a device, just as it means something when you see the Disney logo on a movie. Without saying a word, they are telling you something about that device. They are telling you something about that movie. And depending on how you feel about what that brand stands for, it may very well make you more likely to pick up that device and give it a try or pay for the tickets to see the film and more so than you would for any other device or any other film with different logos or no logos. Being able to say something, and in some cases being able to say a great deal without saying anything, can be an incredibly powerful and incredibly valuable thing. But it can also, unfortunately, be truly harmful if we're not careful. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about labels and how we use them and how they can be both immensely useful but also remarkably dangerous, depending on the situation and how we approach them. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. A huge thanks to everyone who has in some way, shape, or form contributed to the show already, whether that means direct monetary contribution or sharing it with a friend or leaving a review up on iTunes. All of these efforts make a huge difference and I truly appreciate it. If you are thinking about contributing, supporting the show in some way, you can go to letsknowthings.com, scroll down a little bit. There are a bunch of different options of how you can do so. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash L-K-T, the letters L-K-T, you will get a free month's trial of Audible, which is an absolutely lovely service, but you will also get a free audiobook of your choice that you get to keep, whether or not you stick with Audible past the trial. Definitely worth checking out, and if you are Lacking for a book to use that credit on or just want a new book to read? Stay tuned till the end of the episode and I will give a book recommendation for you. And finally, this episode is brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I use for all of my online hosting needs. If you go to hostgator.com/lkt, you will receive a substantial discount that they give to Let's Know Things listeners. That's HostGator.com slash L-K-T. Thanks again for your support, whatever shape it might take. Let's get back to the show. So this is a great big topic, and as a consequence of that, I have two different main articles that I want to unspool today, and these are actually substantially different articles about substantially different things, and as such I'm going to talk a little bit about the first one before I get into the second one. And the first article is from fastcodesign.com, and it's entitled The Surprising Genius of the I Voted Sticker. And now, for those of you who are unfamiliar, probably anybody who's not within the US or who hasn't been in the US during a presidential election, you might not know that in most voting districts around the country, if you go in to vote on voting day, they will typically give you, or at least make available, a little sticker that says, I voted. And Typically, it will have some kind of American flag or American flag colors on it. There's a lot of different versions of this sticker, but it's fairly iconic at this point. And it's so iconic that a lot of people, I think, would be surprised to learn that it only came into being, or at least came into common practice in 1986. Before that, there were a few places that were doing something similar, but it wasn't as widespread and nationwide as it is today. And what's remarkable in a lot of ways is that these stickers, they're not cheap. They cost about 15 cents a piece, which is not individually expensive. But on scale, when you have millions of people voting, at least tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions in a good election season, and you want to make sure that you have enough stickers for everybody, that is a fairly massive price tag for something that doesn't seem particularly integral to the process. There's a lot of other places you could put that money, arguably. That seems like it would do a lot more good. But interestingly, and and the reason that they decided that this was actually a good place to spend this money, is that the stickers and the people wearing them then become walking advertisements for the ideas of democracy for the ideas of participating within the form of democracy that we have in the United States, for going out and voting and participating, and then showing your pride in it. And so it becomes kind of a similar thing to seeing somebody walk down the street wearing a logo of a streetwear brand or wearing a particular type of headphones that have a logo on it. It becomes a representation of both the person wearing it, But then that person wearing it rubs off on that logo and what it represents as well. And so in this case, what it becomes is kind of a reinforcement of societal norms. More people, they found, started voting when they looked around and it seemed like a lot of other people were voting. And so the reason that they decided that this was money well spent starting from the mid-80s was that they found that by investing that money in this type of effort, by showing that this is something people do, that this is something that they take enough pride in that they will wear a sticker to show that they did it, that is something that tends to incentivize folks to vote more frequently, or at least to remember to vote, than other efforts like putting up billboards or posters or television advertisements. Nobody wants to be left out of this type of shared experience. And that's part of the value of these stickers as well. The idea of a shared experience that we've all done this thing, we've all been part of this election, so we have at least this one thing in common with strangers. It's kind of the same thing, the same feeling that you get when there's maybe a natural disaster. And suddenly... All of these people, all of these neighbors of yours that you've never met before, you suddenly have something in common and a reason to have a conversation, a, a point of common interest. That common ground then has some societal benefits, but again, it also creates that wave so that anybody who's not part of that movement kind of wants to be part of it because it seems like everybody else has had the shared experience. They have been part of something, they were in the same earthquake, they saw the same World Series or they participated in the same election. The modern iteration of this, because the stickers, they're relatively modern, but the modern iteration in terms of being in the age of social media is creating the ability for people to essentially brag about the fact that they participated in this process. By giving them maybe labels or graphics or something that they can apply to the social media profiles, to their avatars, some type of check in that they can do on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, some type of overlay, something unique that you can only get or only easily get by participating in this process. And so it has a lot of the same consequences. People are still seeing all of their friends' avatars change or seeing all the Check ins at a voting location, the same way that you would see the stickers, and then still having that same feeling of, oh man, everybody's doing this. I don't want to be that slouch in my social group who didn't participate. I don't want to be seen as that person who's not riding the same wave. And it's probably good in a lot of ways that this new capability, this new type of online version of the sticker is available, because in a lot of places, most notably like Chicago and some parts of New York, they don't give the stickers anymore because of the cost. And this is something that has upset a lot of people. This is another testament to the power of this type of label that you can wear, that not having a free, let's be honest, kind of tacky sticker that you get for going in and voting, something that ostensibly you're supposed to be doing anyway, but not getting that stupid little 15-cent sticker Pisses off a lot of people and makes them feel incredibly disappointed because they wanted to have evidence. They wanted to have that thing that showed that they were part of this process, that shows something about what they believe. They wanted to have that logo, essentially, to wear. And even though, you know, an iPhone would be the same device, whether or not it had that little apple on the back, for some people, it wouldn't feel the same if they didn't have a device that had that association with all of the things that Apple as a company, and therefore that logo, has an association with, it wouldn't feel as valuable to some people because it is no longer visibly to everyone else, but also to themselves, associated with that collection of ideas. Now, the second article that I want to get into, again, it's a very different article, but leads back to the same conversation. Is from the online magazine Nautilus. It's actually a wonderful print magazine as well. And the article is called Beyond Sexual Orientation. And it is about the concept of sexual fluidity. And that is the idea that orientation, sexual orientation, can change over time and can therefore be very difficult to define. And in fact, for some people trying to define what they are, in terms of sexual orientation using a label kind of makes them feel worse about it makes them enjoy wearing that label less in some way because it doesn't fully describe how they feel and and what i mean by that is we use terms like straight and gay and bisexual fairly liberally but many people don't feel they fall squarely Into these categories. They don't have enough variety, these terms, to fully encompass all possible situations. The implications of being gay, for instance, would be that you are into people of your own gender. But what if you are into people of your own gender except for this one person? What are you then? Or maybe you were into people of your own gender exclusively until a certain moment in time, at which point you began to feel more attracted to those of the opposite gender. This is where our incredibly simplistic labeling system breaks down. Because although these terms help us identify maybe the zip code of where a given person resides sexually, it isn't specific enough to get us to the more detailed. More pinpoint address, much less the apartment number, and so on. These are very broad labels that fail to take into account many or any really details. And in doing so, when we apply them, we tend to flatten people that we apply them to. And we can make those who don't fit squarely under them feel left out or misunderstood or flawed. And we can make ourselves even feel as if we have to adjust our own feelings and adjust the way that we act in accordance with these labels, because we don't have any other commonly used labels that fit how we actually feel and, and therefore not wanting to feel wrong or like an outsider or like we're confused in some way. We try to adjust the way that we feel, try to force ourselves to fit under a particularly shaped cookie cutter. Most labels are really just names that we apply to things that attempt to make these things easier to describe, but very often, instead of simplifying the process of understanding the world, these labels actually end up being reductive or inaccurate. They also very often accrue a type of meaning baggage over time. Different associations, sometimes from the media, sometimes from common usage of the term, that ends up sticking to that label. For some reason, for example, today, bisexual people are often portrayed as either flighty pixies or dominating sociopaths on television and movies and books. It's a very, very common trope right now if you look around. This media caricature of a bisexual person then can have an impact on how we view anybody to whom we apply the label bisexual in real life, or who identifies as bisexual in real life, even if they themselves are not flighty pixies or dominating sociopaths. We still might view them through that filter without meaning to. This is something that I actually have trouble with when it comes to describing my beliefs. They don't fit perfectly into any existing label that I know about. And sometimes I can use labels as a means of, again, getting into the right general area, the right zip code, and then maybe using three or four of them to try to like triangulate a better location that more perfectly fits what I actually believe. But the more I do that, the more labels I bring in the more inaccurate bias people will also bring, the more baggage I bring into the conversation. I can say things about humanism, for instance, but there is a great deal of baggage that goes with that term, things that I do not actually believe. And so it helps get in roughly the general area, but then it also kind of pollutes the conversation, pollutes the point that I'm trying to make, because it brings all of this additional meaning that then I have to negate in some way. But a lot of people and myself included in most cases, don't really have the time or don't feel they have the time to work through all the intricacies and specifics of everything that they believe. Because there's a lot of other things to do. There's a lot of other priorities in life. And so the idea of sitting down and doing nothing but consciously working through every single belief that you have about every single thing, it's not at the top of everybody's list of priorities. And consequently, a lot of us turn to labels as shortcuts and shorthand as a way of understanding our own beliefs. If I haven't done the research required to understand local tax law, for instance, but I tend to vote Republican, I will likely use that label to guide me In how I vote regarding this thing that I'm ignorant about. The same is true of our lineage, our nationality, our faith, our social group. We use these labels as shorthand to describe ourselves to other people inaccurately because it leaves out those specifics. But we also use them as kind of shorthand decision makers for ourselves for decisions that are important and decisions that are mundane. Because doing so is easier than sorting through all of those specifics that would take a great deal of time to work through, but also because we tend to assume that, well, if I agree with this one group 80% of the time, chances are I will agree with them on this other thing as well, or I'm more likely to agree with them than with the other political party. And that may or may not actually be true. In some cases, it absolutely is, and in arguably a great number of cases. That's why we tend to do this as often as we do and get away with it. But then that other 20% of the time that you do not agree with that group that you are using as a shorthand, with that label that you are using as a shorthand, that could be vitally important. And it could be something that leads you to make decisions that go dramatically, squarely, against everything that you believe. But yet we tend to do this automatically because it's easier. It is a heuristic. It's a mental shortcut that we use. And it's really unfortunate that this is the case. I mean, there's not much to be done about the fact that most of us have other things to do other than sitting around and mulling over the specifics of everything that we believe and therefore coming up with better ways to explain it. But it's a bummer because it makes it more difficult not just to to think about these things, because we tend to go straight to those mental shortcuts, to those labels that we've applied to ourselves, even when we are thinking internally about these issues. We tend to work through our beliefs in terms of these larger labels. And so rather than just saying, hey, what do I believe about these hundred different things? We say, okay, here's what Republicans believe. Where do I differ from what their party platform is? And that changes the conversation dramatically as well, because then we change our perspective on all of these different vitally important issues to pro or con in relationship to this particular label that's pre-existing, rather than allowing ourselves to make a non-value judgment on where our opinion happens to be on all of these different practical and, in some cases, theoretical issues. And then, further, when those labels make their way outside of our own internal dialogue and into conversation, using a label to describe yourself or a position that you have on something can imply a great deal about your biases or beliefs that, that maybe you do not actually hold. Saying that you are a Christian might imply to some people that you have certain stances on certain political issues, when in fact you believe the opposite. But having that label very often reduces us to a certain platonic form of whatever it is that that label describes. And what I mean by platonic form is an ideal of something. It is the outline of something. It it represents the perfect version of whatever it is that we're discussing. Now for instance the platonic ideal of a sphere would be like a perfectly smooth and mathematically precise sphere it's the icon essentially of a sphere that you think of when you think of a sphere similarly the platonic form of a cat might have a certain shape have a certain proportion have certain length of fur and a tail that curves just so and have eyes of a certain color. And this platonic ideal is defined by where you come from, your background, all of the cats that you've ever seen. It's predicated on a bunch of different biases and will be different for everybody. But we still have these platonic ideals for just about everything. Any concept that you can think of, there's something that springs to mind as the iconic representation of that idea. And so when we are having a conversation and somebody says that they are a Christian, there is a platonic ideal form of a Christian that comes to mind when they say that. Using that label, then, almost certainly assures that you will view everything that they say from that point forward in the context of that platonic form, that idea of what a quote-unquote ideal Christian is. And so this is a concept, the platonic form, that can be very helpful in certain circumstances to help us gauge the general region, again, like the zip code of where something happens to be. But it falls flat in a dramatic way when we try to get any type of detail that goes beyond what we have experienced or what we have been told about a certain group, about a certain shape, about a certain animal at any point in the past. There is no one ideal for what a cat should be, and there's no one descriptor that encompasses everyone who considers themselves to be a Christian. And so there's no good reason that these platonic forms, these ideals, should influence our view of people. There's no reason that we should try to hold somebody using that particular label or hold a cat to the ideal that we have in our mind of what a cat is and then judge it because it's not the same as that mental image that we have. And yet, this is what we do. With anything that we apply a label to, any bisexual person that we encounter will be subconsciously, reflexively compared to the mental image that we have of what such a person is like. Any Christian will be held up against the same, any cat will be held up against the same, If we encounter a sphere that is less than perfect, then we will judge it as such. Labels can be useful as shorthand, but it is vitally important that we recognize that that is all they are. And when the entirety of our belief system, or the way that we view the world, is predicated on labels, on labeling ourselves, on labeling other people, on labeling all those poor cats, then we've created an immensely distorted view of ourselves, of the world, of all of our feline friends, of other belief systems, of everything. All of these concepts will be flattened by these labels that we apply to them. And it makes the world a simpler place to understand on a very surface level, but it makes it nearly impossible to dig deep and understand the differences and the details that are just below the surface without experiencing some kind of dramatic and uncomfortable parallax shift. It makes things like confirmation bias a lot more powerful, because suddenly we have this complete list of different ideals, things that we've used to judge the world, lenses through which we view the world, rather, these labels then any time we are told something different that not all christians are like that not all bisexuals are like that not all cats look like that nor should they that we have to struggle against this confirmation bias that makes us give more credence to things that support the ideas that we already have that we already hold means that we are supporting these ideal incorrect platonic forms over the details that are there staring us in the face if only we were willing and capable Of taking them in. Trying to understand differences then in yourself, in other people, in different belief systems, in animals, in everything becomes a real uphill climb. And there's a lot of different reasons that we see this in a lot of different sectors and a lot of different time periods too. But our propensity. To label things and then fall back on those labels as kind of an absolute guide to the way things are plays an immense and important role in why these biases stick around and in why we have trouble, even if we truly want to, if we really have the desire to not have prejudice, for example, our propensity to label and the difficulty in adjusting those labels once we've adopted them and identifying details underneath the labels once we've applied them to someone or something. It makes that very, very difficult. And this has real-world repercussions. As I mentioned, it feeds prejudice, because our prejudices are our preconceived notions about groups of people or certain ideologies. And if someone else applies a label to themselves, a label that is associated with things that we do not agree with, Even if they do not themselves agree with those things, and they do not consider that to be part of the label, there is suddenly a conflict there. There is a wall between you and that other person. These labels kind of create a black box around other people and cultures and ideas. I can say, for example, that I understand cars. I know What a car does generally. And I generally know what it's capable of. I even kind of know how it all fits together and works. But mostly what I understand is where a car fits within larger society, how it fits into our infrastructure, our transportation infrastructure, and urban infrastructure. I understand if I put fuel in, then it takes me places. I understand how to open the door and fasten the seatbelt. There are things that I understand about a car. There's a certain level of understanding I have about that thing and where it fits into my understanding of the world. But if something goes wrong, if suddenly that car stops working, I will not understand what has happened. Because there's so much going on underneath the surface, under the hood, that I do not know about, and that my basic, fundamental understanding of where that thing fits into my world. Does not prepare me for. And the same is true with any of these labels, with any of these things that we have decided that we understand. We understand the inputs and the outputs, and generally what role they play in our world. If anything goes wrong, if anything changes about that thing, if anything happens underneath the hood, underneath the surface, that gives us an output or does not receive an input in a way that we don't understand suddenly the car doesn't go, suddenly the Christian doesn't believe what we think they should believe, we don't have a mechanism for that thing or that person's role in our life, except to put in a great deal of work to try to understand every individual component. I can put in the time to learn more about cars and stand a chance of repairing it or at least understanding what has changed if something goes wrong. And likewise, I could put in the time to understand what an individual who happens to be a Christian believes in all of its complexity. I could put in the time to do that. But just like learning about a car and the specifics of how it works above and beyond the bare basics that I see without even trying, it takes time, it takes effort, it's difficult. And again, that's not something that we just tend to passively do. It takes a lot of intention. It takes the desire to actually learn about these things and the understanding that it is valuable. It's not enough to simply say, okay, yeah, I understand that there's differences here. It's a step in the right direction to understand that, okay, there's stuff going on inside of this black box that I don't understand. Because then you can look at that car that's not working and say, okay, I don't get this, there's probably something going on here. And you can get that something has changed, something that is beyond your immediate understanding, without having to decide that suddenly physics don't work and everything else in your worldview has to change as well. And the same is true with understanding that people are not their labels. If you can understand that there's stuff going on beneath that label, underneath the surface, then you stand a much better chance of not having your world collapse around you and having to change your understanding of, of inertia and, and fundamental physics simply because that, that Christian didn't act like they're supposed to, or that bisexual person doesn't like who they're supposed to, or that cat doesn't have the right length of tail. This is the case, for instance, when something like a person's sexuality becomes politically relevant. I think that many of us felt that we understood things like homosexuality because we understood The outlines of it. We understood who these people were generally based on rumor and media portrayals, maybe brief exposure to someone to whom we could apply that label. So, societally, that was an evolution all into itself to to understand that these are people who have certain ideas, certain preferences. It was something that we could understand on a very fundamental level without needing to understand the full mechanics, we thought then suddenly when we find out that everything isn't as simple as that and people can like all different types of people of all different types of genders and somebody who says that they are gay or who has other people call them gay might have a far more complex sexuality than that understanding that and the specifics of how that person feels is like understanding what's going on underneath the hood of that car and recognizing that everybody is like that with not just one thing, not just their sexuality, not just their religion, not just their political beliefs, but everything, it allows you to take that into consideration. Even if you don't understand every single person and every single specific property of every single person, you can still work these differences into your. Mental layout of the world and of society without the whole thing crumbling around you, without feeling shattered, and without feeling the need to put them in a box to make them fit within that Platonic ideal, and without getting offended when they don't. This is something we see a whole lot where somebody comes out or says that they have a a specific trait that doesn't fit neatly under one of these labels or takes on one label and then changes it, or says, yeah, you know, I'm gay, but I also sometimes like people of the opposite sex. If we can understand that there are these differences that do not fit neatly under these labels, then maybe we won't struggle so hard to make sure that they keep everybody in line. Because a lot of the damage that emerges from these things and the way that we apply them, some of it is internal and in the way that we see the world, but then some of it we weaponize. And it's kind of our reflexive way to try to ensure that the world makes sense and the world maintains a certain order, but calling people out when they fail to adhere to what we believe a certain label should mean is almost always an inherently negative thing. It's almost always going to hurt somebody and recognizing that, whatever it might be and to whomever you might be trying to do this can help all of us i think get more value out of labels rather than using them to cause harm. And the valuable thing about labels is that they do allow us to say a great deal with very very little, sometimes by saying nothing, as i mentioned before, with the brand labels with the logos. Some brands give us labels that we can literally wear, logos and logotypes that help us show That we are part of a particular movement, or that we believe in certain ideals, or that we are affiliated with certain types of culture. They are, in a sense, kind of pre made Venn diagrams where each of the circles represents something else this particular musician, this particular color palette, this particular age demographic, this particular type of technology, this particular band, this particular artist. And then we can take that pre-made set of Venn diagrams and, and lay it over ourselves and say, yeah, I'm right at the middle of all of this. These are things that I enjoy. Apple, for example, has associated itself with certain types of musicians and music, upwardly mobile young people who work in creative fields with things like hipster coffee and living in thronging cities with white space. And these associations then, when we... Associate ourselves with their label, with their logo, they rub off on us socially in a way. And that is something that happens inside of us. We perceive them as rubbing off on us. So we borrow that type of cool, that type of association, and feel like we are part of a movement in the same way as the I voted stickers can make us feel. But they're also something that we use as a social signal to show other people what we are associated with. And the reverse happens as well. Apple lends us their collection of Venn diagrams that we get to use as shorthand to describe what we believe and what we're associated with, generally, in a general sense at least. But then in return, the people who use their devices send whatever it is that they've got, their personal collection of those Venn diagrams, back to them. And so it becomes kind of a reciprocal relationship. Now this can be a very good thing if you use logos, if you wear logos, if you buy products very intentionally, because it means that you can not only support companies that you believe in, but you can associate yourself with companies that represent you well, that represent you accurately and correctly. Having an Apple logo on your laptop says something about you to everyone who sees you using it, whether you want it to say those things about you or not. And so if those things are actually reflective of who you are and what you believe, having that logo out there, loud and proud, can be a very good thing. It's a shortcut for other people to understand something about you. But if it does not, if this brand connotation, if its collection of Venn diagram elements does not line up with yours then it creates kind of a false pretense, but it's also something that does you sort of an injustice. Because what you're essentially shouting out to the world is that this is the type of music, this is the type of color palette, etc. that is aligned with your preferences and beliefs, when in reality it's not. And so then when people interact with you or the presuppositions that they have about you will be informed by that logo. And so again, these are things that can be Incredibly valuable, but they can also be incredibly harmful, or at the very least, misleading. And that can lead to a lot of different types of harm. Again, because then you are explaining yourself or forced to explain yourself in the context of that logo later, rather than being able to do it, you know, in a vacuum from scratch. Interestingly, a lot of us, I think, realize this, but maybe wouldn't vocalize it or or wouldn't necessarily know. Why we do what we do when it comes to logos. Think about a person that you've seen or that you know who has very little money, but who splurges what they do have, or in some cases, even takes out a loan to purchase a high end car or a high end purse or a designer logo emblazoned jacket or pair of shoes these are people who are consciously or unconsciously attempting to use this latent social information that is embedded in logos to say something that is untrue about themselves. They're they're trying to affiliate themselves with high-end expensive stuff, which they believe then says to the world, hey, I have a lot of money, I have a lot of extra so I can spend it on this type of thing, this type of luxury item. And so they're taking advantage of this system to announce something to the world, but what they are announcing is not true. What they are projecting outward, those Venn diagrams that they are associating themselves with, are inaccurate associations. And so they're using these logos in the same way you might tell a white lie in a conversation with somebody that you want to impress. Maybe when you're talking about your job position or your responsibilities. Very often, if we believe that doing so, telling a mistruth will increase someone else's opinion of us, we will manipulate the system in some subtle way, manipulate the signals or the words that we use to try to elevate our position in their eyes. And so people do this a lot, not just with words, not just in a conversation, but in the logos that they wear, because it helps them express something to the world that they think will elevate their position in the eyes of other people. Which goes back to the I Voted stickers that I talked about earlier. These are social cues that say something to the world about us, because they show us to be part of a particular crowd, a group of people who voted, a group of people who maybe, to some people's mind, Give a damn who want to participate in the system and change things for the better. It's a group of people who are proudly announcing to the world using this iconography that they took the time to fulfill their civic duty. Wanting to say things like this about yourself can be powerful incentive to try to manipulate the system. There have been efforts in place to try to keep these stickers out of the hands of people who are not rewarding those who go into voting booths. You can buy knockoffs on Amazon and other places online, but they are not the same sticker. Because to some people, it would be very offensive if you went out of your way to try to appear to be a part of this particular social group, when in fact you didn't do the thing that makes them a group. You did not vote to be part of the group that is proudly showing that they voted it would be a an immensely watered down version of like wearing a military uniform if you didn't serve that is something that people who have been in the military have earned and so it's immensely disrespectful and even illegal to pretend to be part of that group to have had that shared set of experiences when you did not it's not as intense and vital obviously to wear the i voted sticker as it is to like fake a military Uniform, but it is the same concept in practice. We love labels because they allow us to communicate a great deal of information quickly and to understand, at least generally, the world and to understand it as a collection of heuristics, of of these mental shortcuts. And this can help us self define, but only in a broad sense. And it can also lead to immense prejudice. And to misunderstandings about the world. An inability or an unwillingness to see the world beyond these labels, which unfortunately is what we are incentivized to do, to just see the labels and not dig any deeper, that reduces our ability to see those details and to understand what's really happening. It ensures that we see the car and we see its place in the world, but we do not understand what makes it do what it does. We do not understand the machine underneath the hood fixating on the labels rather than the individuals is like ignoring the world outside of cities the the spaces in between these places what happens outside of major population centers can seem less relevant and can be invisible even to the people who live in social hubs But that doesn't mean that these spaces don't exist, and it doesn't mean that they don't change and influence things. It just means that those who are unaware of what's happening beneath the surface will be shocked to find, seemingly out of nowhere, someday, that their worldview is incomplete or inaccurate. And they will be forced to scramble last minute to readjust not just their way of life, but their way of perceiving the world. Look around at the people who are most surprised about any change in society, about any change in culture, about any change in technology. And very likely, these will be the people who are most dedicated to their labels and their labeling of the world. Those who are better at breaking through the labels and seeing the details tend to be the people who are also most cognizant of these little changes that are percolating up from out of nowhere and also the ones who are most capable of adjusting their mindset on the fly. It's difficult for us to fully comprehend, or even really discuss and develop our ideas about, things that we do not have the language for. I'm reading a book right now about time travel. It's called Time Travel by James Gleek. And there's a chapter about how in the early days of time travel science fiction, which wasn't that long ago, actually, writers had trouble writing about the idea of time travel because we didn't have the language, the vocabulary, to describe moving through time. We hadn't developed the right metaphors or the proper vocabulary for it yet. And further. It was difficult to address the various paradoxes and tropes that we see so often in the time travel genre these days, but because we'd yet to speak about them regularly and really hash out these details and tell these stories, we had a lot of trouble talking about these issues and figuring out how they could be bypassed or what seemed legitimate and what did not. We couldn't even really begin that conversation because we didn't have the proper words for it. It's interesting, and a little mind-boggling, to me at least, to remember that a second, the the unit of measurement, the second, isn't a hard-set physical law. We're not looking at something that is clearly and evidently and necessarily separate from the rest of Time from the rest of the universe. We delineated periods of time and we called one portion of that delineation a second and another portion, another amount of time. We called a minute and an hour and a day and so on. And we did this to help us measure something that was otherwise difficult to address and discuss and compare and understand something that allowed us to organize our days and to organize our our lives. But before we developed the language that allowed us to talk about it, we lacked the capability to act upon that measurement and to contrast short periods of time with long periods of time, for instance. Before we had the capability to accurately measure time and to speak about it, time was a lot less relevant than it is today. And these terms are labels that we use as shorthand, just like any other label. Second is a label that we apply to a specific unit of time. And sometimes I find that to be helpful, to remember that, that all of these different things that we take for granted as concrete parts of life are, are really labels that describe something, and this is something that I find also derails and often expands infinitely the scope and potentially the duration of any conversation I might be having when I remember this this way of looking at the world, and so much to the delight or the horror of the other people involved in said conversation. Once you get into this questioning and meticulously defining, like really exploring and picking apart the labels that we use when talking about anything, but particularly when we talk about those subjects upon which we most frequently editorialize, it it really does help clarify a lot of the debates that we have, I think, or at least makes them more palatable. When we can recognize just how often we have differing ideas about the terms that we use, not just the larger subject matter to which we are applying those terms. And when we can see what does and what doesn't actually fit under which labels we've been using, perhaps incorrectly or differently, all this time. This is something that can make the world seem immensely unhinged at times. Because once you notice that we speak in such shorthand all the time, you can't help but also notice that we societally fail to fill in these gaps more often than not. And as such, we're operating under the influence of a lot of incredible leaps and assumptions all the damn time. And that can be worrying. It can make you wonder what assumptions some people are making. And what that means for those of us who do not make the same assumptions about particular labels, about particular measurements and terms, things that are not absolute, but rather different based on the language that we use to describe them. And this is why I think this subject is so interesting and important. This is a topic, much like a lot of topics that I talk about on this podcast, that doesn't have a set answer or a set solution, there's not even necessarily a problem. It's just something that by being aware of it, I think we alleviate a lot of the potential issues because it gives us the ability to better gauge what's happening and and to make better choices based on an increased amount of information. So long as we are aware that this is something that's happening around us, so long as we are aware of the flaws of this type of system, but also of what it allows us to do when it's used correctly and intentionally. Being able to use this type of shorthand is immensely valuable because it allows us and it allowed our ancestors to very quickly understand broad concepts and to share that information with each other. But I think it's up to us. I think it's up to we people who are now more globalized than ever and therefore exposed to different words, different concepts more ideas and perspectives than ever, but also people who are at a point where we have the opportunity to evolve the way that we communicate, more than any of our ancestors had the opportunity to do. It's up to us to figure out ways to evolve the language, and and not just the spoken language, but the visual language and everything else, all the different types of labels that we use, so that we can communicate not just the broad strokes, but so that we have the capability of really concisely, but also precisely, describe these things that are increasingly important to us and to the world. Today's episode of Let's Know Things was brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I use to host my blog and my author website and the website for this podcast and pretty much everything that I do online goes through them because they are such a pleasure to work with. If you go to hostgator.com slash LKT, you will receive a discount that they have provided for Let's Know Things listeners and you can see what services they offer to see if they have something relevant to that project that you've been meaning to get started or that website you've been meaning to build for your business. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, LKT for Let's Know Things, LKT, then you will get a free month of Audible and you will get a free audiobook of your choice from their collection of something like 200,000 audiobooks. A lot of you probably already have an impressive pile of books you've been meaning to get around to, but in case you are looking for a way to spend that audible credit or just want a book to check out that is amazing and mind expanding, might I recommend the book No Logo by Naomi Klein. This is a classic to me as a designer and a brander. It is kind of the anti-brand in a certain way. It's it's not inherently against the idea of labels and such, but It is an in-depth exploration into the corporations behind these brands. And it was written in 1999 initially, and it's been updated a few times since then. But the core concept is to take a really close look at companies like Nike, Coca-Cola, and see what is behind their immense growth, and to talk about some of the abuses that they are responsible for both nationally and internationally, and to take a look at what the uber-corporation type of capitalism we've evolved into means for society and means for social movements as well, and what can be done about some of these things. And so from the standpoint of somebody who builds brands, who develops logos, but also tells the stories for companies, it was an important book for me to read because it helps me make better choices about who I work with and what types of stories I tell. Because in a lot of cases, these stories and these logos and everything that goes with them help create the space in which these brands operate. And that can be wonderful if they are a good brand, a good company, a good collection of people doing good things, but it can be atrocious and kind of help weaponize somebody who is meaning to do ill in many different ways and for many different reasons. So that's No Logo by Naomi Klein. You can get it on Audible using audibletrial.com slash LKT, but I also highly recommend it if you want to pick it up at your library or your local indie bookstore or on your Kindle, your Kobo. However you get it, it is an excellent book and well worth your time. So this episode is partially supported by those sponsors. If you check them out and check out those links I gave, then that helps support the show as does contributing directly. You can do so monetarily through PayPal, through cash.me, through Venmo. You can also do so by sharing the show with a friend or leaving a review, leaving some stars, writing up a quick review on iTunes. You can see the full assortment of options to help support the show at letsknowthings.com. Scroll down a little bit once you arrive at the site, and you will see a bunch of different options in addition to those ones I just mentioned. Thank you so much to everybody who has already contributed, and if you are thinking of contributing, thank you too in advance. I appreciate it. If you'd like to check out the show notes for this episode or any episode of the show, you can find those at letsnotethings.com. and while there, you can also subscribe to the free Let's Know Things newsletter which goes out every Monday and contains an assortment of links to interesting things for you to read. You can also find Let's Know Things on Facebook and Instagram at Let's Know Things. You can find out more about me and my work, including a complete list of all the books I've written, which is another good way to support the show if you're interested, at colin.io. My blog is at ExileLifestyle.com, and my YouTube show is called Consider This, and you can find that at YouTube. You can find me personally pretty much everywhere on the internet at ColinIsMyName. So if you'd like to say howdy or keep up with my other projects and adventures, that would be the place to do it, whether it's on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever else. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.